0: Hello and welcome to another quadrat of our Lost in Science Summer series, where we hear from the Stories of laboratory story, which is where scientists and science enthusiasts tell us the stories of their favourite scientists and some of their favourite science. Later on in the show, we'll hear from stage writer and wine enthusiast Luke Morris, who tells us all about possibly the world's most famous monk, Dom Perignon, and how he helped make Champagne a household name. But first up, we'll hear from Mei Liu, who tells us about the unlikely career trajectory of Hedvig Eva Kiesler, better known as Hedy Lamarr, who helped develop some of the earliest missile guidance systems. (music)
1: your smartphone, chances are you love it because you appreciate its ability to communicate with other devices and access the internet. Now, when you think of who might have invented the basis for communication technologies such as Wi-Fi, Bluetooth and GPS, who do you think of? CSIRO? That's what I thought too. I bet You weren't thinking it was someone who starred in softcore porn at the age of 19. Someone who portrayed the first female orgasm in mainstream media. No? Someone widely promoted as the most beautiful woman in the world during Hollywood's golden era heyday. Someone lampooned by Mel Brooks in Blazing Saddles later in life and who subsequently sued Mel Brooks and a whole bunch of other people and was caught twice for shoplifting laxatives and eye drops. (laughs) A misunderstood genius? A woman forever typecast as seductive temperatrice, difficult other woman, forever looked at but intellectually overlooked. I am, of course... Talking about Haiti Lamar. Born Hedwig Kaisler in Austria in 1914 to wealthy Jewish parents. Her dad was a banker, mum was a concert pianist, and you know, think boarding school in Switzerland, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. She died, spoiler alert, alone, bitter, and half-blind, aged 86 in Florida. She once said in a television interview in the late 1960s, I am a very simple, complicated person. How can people understand someone who has as many sides as I do? It's exactly this multifaceted nature of Hedy Lamar that's drawn me to her story. Our story begins with her most public face, her glamorous looks. Imagine Catherine Zeta-Jones' sultriness, cross, Dita-Vonti's seduction and a touch of demureness, Snow White come to life. An entire room would hush when Heidi walked in. Audiences gasped at her beauty when she appeared on screen. In 1933, Haiti starred in a Czech art house film aptly titled Ecstasy in which she left her boring husband for a hot engineer, swam naked and had a really great time in bed. Now this caught the attention of the third richest man in Austria and his name was Friedrich Mandel who was by then an established munitions dealer who arranged their marriage. He kind of just sidled up to their um, acquaintance and said, let's just make this happen. And then when he did marry her, he tried to destroy all the copies of the ecstasy film that he could get his hands on and um, wanted her to stop acting. Some sources paint him as protective. Others paint him as overbearing. Locking her at his castle and country manor and only letting her out for parties and business meetings because she just happened to be really good at math. He was having some serious meetings with some serious fascists. Henchmen of Hitler and Mussolini. Some sources say that the couple actually partied with Hitler and Mussolini themselves. (laughs) Some secret fascists in the room here. Um, Hedy was a gracious hostess, though she was reportedly not allowed to talk or smile much or risk Mandel's jealous wrath. So if she couldn't talk or smile, what could she do? Hedy eavesdropped on munitions trade secrets and the art of war. Hedy Lamar was deeply unhappy at this forbidden her acting or any other creative pursuits, and told her to buy furs and jewellery instead. Her lack of freedom, coupled with worrying signs of anti-Semitism in the region, had Hedy stockpiling cash and jewellery and planning her escape. So there's quite a few conflicting stories online about how precisely she escaped, whether A, she fled with her maid to Paris, B, she drugged her maid and stole her clothing and then fled to Paris, or C, asked Mandel to let her wear all her jewels and escape with a lot, or D, ran away with only a single glamorous gown. We actually don't know the truth. Sorry, I couldn't actually accurately fact check this for a 10 minute talk, so here we go. Um, anyway, so Hedy luckily or cunningly escaped Mandel's clutches and met Louis B. Mayer, director of MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, of the roaring lion's head fame that you, know, that you see at the start of the movies. So Louis B. Mayer was pretty scandal-averse, but Hedy's beauty must have wowed him and he gave her a contract. Some sources say she accepted pittance. Others say she negotiated the equivalent of 3000 a week. That's a lot. That's more than I earn. <laughs> Haiti was consistently typecast as the foreign seductress, the other woman. She didn't, actually didn't get very many lines. And in typical candour, she quipped, Any girl can be glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. Hetty was a bored and lonely immigrant, unfulfilled intellectually and creatively. However, Hetty was a problem solver. Her son, Anthony Loder, product of the third of six marriages she's had, he said, She was such a creative person, non stop solution finding. If you talk to her with a problem, she had a solution. Hetty solved her boredom by creating a secret laboratory, complete with a full draftsman's table, the right kind of lighting, bookshelves of engineering reference books. In her secret lab, I love that, in her secret lab, she tinkered with inventions like an improved traffic light, a better tissue box design, a water carbonating tablet, kind of like Barocca, She said it tasted terrible, it tasted like Alka-Seltzer. Hedy was was also worried about the impending Second World War, as well as, like most Hollywood actresses, her figure. Hedy had a European figure, broad shoulders, meatier than the average Hollywood starlet, and a much smaller bust. When she went to a party in her early 20s, Hedy met George. George Antile was the bad boy of the music scene at the time, what several sources call avant-garde, not to mention being a prolific writer, called Ballet Mécanique, where he had 16 player pianos or pianolas programmed on paper rolls of punched-out code playing simultaneously and in harmony. However, this isn't where the conversation started between Hetty and George. Hetty was interested in a piece... He'd written for Esquire magazine called The Gland Book for the Questing Male. He wrote that a woman's healthy pituitary gland might enhance the size and shape of her breasts. Okay, Hetty was really interested in this. She was so taken with the idea. And after meeting Antire, she went to him for advice on enlarging her bust without surgery. Now, nobody on the internet can really say how the conversation turned from tits to torpedoes, but it did. Haiti was already thinking about the National Inventors Council's call for civilian submissions and was aware of US torpedo signalling and how easily those signals could be jammed. Haiti had understood some of these concepts from her time overhearing trade talk in Mandel's mansion. She knew that if the transmitter and receiver could simultaneously switch communication frequencies with an agreed upon secret code, it would be impossible for an outsider to jam. She just couldn't quite get how to do this technically. And that's where George came in. He used the pianola as an analogy. Imagine if the receiver and the transmitter could be programmed with the same recorder role. They would be changing note frequency at the same time. To an outsider listening on only one frequency, say just the note C, they would only hear communication on this frequency every now and again. So random blips on the radar and not complete communication. Genius. Hedy was so excited by this, she forgot all about her natural boob job and she left to get to work on it immediately, stopping only to write her number on Antile's car in lipstick. (laughs) Classic glamour queen move. So fast forward to 1942. Hedy and George received their patent for frequency hopping spread spectrum. That's a mouthful. Or FHSS. I'm just going to say frequency hopping from now on. Hedy was 28 at the time. Uh, in an act of patriotism, they donated their research to the US Navy, who could not get over the image of a piano strapped to a torpedo and stopped laughing only long enough to shelve the idea. Hedy Lamarr was told by Navy brass, ''You should go raise money for the war instead of this silly inventing business. ''Stick to what you know, doll.'' Dismissed for her brains and told to rely on her beauty instead. Haiti was disheartened but still patriotic. She reportedly raised seven million in war bonds in a single night. So the idea was that she would give a kiss to anyone who donated more than 25,000 in one go. Now, this didn't really sound feasible to me, so I did a little calculation. So, 7 million divide 25,000 is 280 kisses per night, which either means Hedy was working really hard for her adoptive country or she was just trying to leave an Italian wedding. Other sources say that she would flirt with another famous actor in front of a live audience and would just be a total tease and not kiss him until enough money had been raised. That's probably more likely. So, fast forward again to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, before that, in the 1950s, some engineers in an electronics business uncovered the frequency hopping patent and set about designing an electronic means of frequency hopping instead of the mechanical ma- manner described by um, Haiti and George. However, it wasn't until the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 that had the US military closely examining frequency hopping technology and realizing it was not absolute hopping is especially useful for communication between multiple electronic devices, such as GPS, Wi Fi and Bluetooth. It overcomes issues with signal interference as communication can seamlessly switch to a different frequency bandwidth. By this time, Haiti's patent had expired, and she and George Antile, who died by that stage, never received a cent. Fast forward to now, I keep saying fast forward, I'm just moving really quickly. Fast forward to now, and Hades' invention is the basis for so much that we take for granted cellular data, Wi Fi, Bluetooth, GPS, and not being stuck in some version of the man in the high tower. Oh, pop culture reference there. <laughs> um, so the next bit is called Hades' decline, so it gives you some idea of what I'm going to be talking about, when Haiti finally received some recognition for her contribution to comms technology, she didn't go to accept the honour. An angry recluse by this stage, face marred by experimental plastic surgery, suing everyone under the sun for unauthorised use of her image and name, she reportedly muttered, it's about time. Yet another facet of Haiti Lamar it's important to remember that despite having a perfect face, she was not a perfect person and she never pretended to be. She was a woman of action who took risks and problem solved as best as she could. Woody Allen once asked Hetty whether she had any regrets about her life. No, no regrets, she said. Nothing is perfect in this life. And nothing is for sure, but you learn from everything all the time.
0: You are listening to Lost in Science Summer Edition. That was May Liu from Labor Story, who was telling us about the tragic career trajectory of Hedy Lamarr and how she helped to develop early missile guidance systems. Next up, we have Luke Morris, who will be telling us all about the myth and mystery, as well as the reality of Dom Perignon and his role in making Champagne.
2: Imagine you're in the French wine region of Champagne. Surrounded by decadence, a vineyard owner holds glass and they mutter, as all Champagne owners did in the early 1600s. Now, I don't know a lot of French, so I'll use a French word here. See if you can pick what it is and what it means. Where the merd did these bubbles come from and how the merd do I get rid of them? Of all the massive embarrassments in wine, none are matched for reversal of fortune as the story of Champagne. For hundreds of years, Champagne was a farming area. Then someone got the big idea that they could uh, compete with Burgundy and take over the table wine market. They are closer to Paris and being just a little bit north of Burgundy shouldn't make that much difference to the growing conditions. As a result, champagne was planted to Pinot Noir and uh, Chardonnay, the main grape varieties of Burgundy, and production was set to increase. Things were going okay. The bubbles that champagne is famous for today were not quite evident early on. Oxidative handling was releasing the CO2 gas and and because wine was transported, eggs used and and ill-fitting cork were allowing the gas to escape. Then bottles started to get used as a quality control, and these weren't great bottles. Have you ever seen those wicker baskets around bottles of Chianti, the Italian wine? That was there to uh, hold the fragile glass together. And along with better corks, pouring, putting the champagne in these bottles was making the gas get trapped inside, and bottles began to explode. And this was an OHS disaster. In one year, 50% of the wine was lost to exploding bottles. And if this wasn't bad enough, bubbles were a known sign of poor wine making. Something had gone terribly wrong and needed to be fixed. Enter Dom Perignon. Born Perry Perignon, and as far as uh, names go, it's a little bit better than Tom Tomlinson, but not as funny as Neville Neville. Uh, Perry's father was a local town clerk whose family owned vineyards. At the age of eighteen, Perry joined an abbey and began life as a Benedictine monk. Those are the ones that wear the hooded robes, don't talk much, work long hours and are self sufficient. Now this self sufficient is very important. It's why the monks ran a vineyard and it's why the quality control of their wine was very was crucial to their survival. In 1668, when Perry was 30, he was sent to manage Abbey Saint-Pierre-de-Hauveluse. There he oversaw everything, the other monks, the land renters, the wine production. He was the general manager. He was the dominus. He was the dom. He got the job on account of the purity of his taste and soundness of his head. Now, this this translates to the fact that he could drink heaps and not get all... uh, um, Basically, he was a keg on legs, and he knew a lot about the drink. And he did. Uh, Each vineyard is different, and Dom Perignon could identify the farm of every grape from the quality of the fruit. He would also blend fruit from different vineyards to make a, a more seamless taste. This is a process known as assemblage... Uh, and it produces something that's called a cuvee. Dom had his favourite vineyards, and to make a better wine, he would implement uh, stringent protocols on harvesting and pruning. Uh, Apparently he was very strict and stressful to work for. Uh, Perry Perignon was exacting, the kind of boss you wouldn't want to work for unless you had to, and the monks at the abbey had to work there. One of the things that Dom did was to remove foot-treading. Now, foot-treading is a process where you jump in in a big vat with all your mates, you get some drinks, you get some smokes, you walk along, you sing songs, and you break the the grapes up to mix them into a must. It sounds romantic, but you can imagine all the impurities that would get into that mix. Uh, Fermentation would get rid of the bacteria, but uh, it's not a good starting point for wine production. So either the Dom hated the idea that his monks were having fun or he just didn't like the, uh, the sweaty, dirty monks getting mixed in with the juice. Either way, he decided to uh, create a pedal press that would split the grapes in a more sterile environment. And this practice helped modify... This practice has been modified and adopted the world over. Um, this is roughly the 1670s, so he's m- introducing a more mechanical system and removing uh, the human element long before automated checkouts. With implementations in harvest, uh, m- improving blending and, and wine purity, Perry Perignon was able to double the sale price of champagne. He... M- his name became synonymous with excellence and was in fact mistaken as a pristine vineyard rather than just a winemaker. Uh, his wine winosa was favoured in the court of Louis XIV, the King of France, and importantly, he'd reduced bubbles and had almost eradicated them. The problem that Perry was working against was this yeast eats sugar. It breaks it down into carbon dioxide and alcohol. It's called fermentation. And to be fair to them, it wasn't really understood until 1857 when Louis Pasteur discovered yeast. Before this, it was just considered this magical gift of the gods. What's important here is that yeast likes uh, temperatures to be about 20 degrees centigrade. It goes dormant in colder temperatures. And since... Champagne is a bit north to Burgundy. What was happening was that fermentation was starting. The yeast was eating all the sugars, but it was going colder earlier. And so the the yeast would go dormant. It would stop fermentation. It would get bottled because everyone would think the process had been done because they have seen enough bubbling coming out of the vat. It'd get sent off to warmer climate where the yeast would wake up again it would start fermenting and needing more sugar in the trapped environment, producing the CO2, and uh, the bottles would start exploding. This is something that uh, Perry wasn't really in, in favour of, didn't really understand. In fact, he was trying to devise ways around it. He was trying to memorise, minimise this natural process, even avoid it. Avoiding is a bit not really the right word, I suppose. What he was trying to limit and control the bubbles. He was trying to make a better drink through this. People didn't so much mind the fizz, they just hated the idea of bottle, bub, these bottles exploding in their hands and corks flying and hitting in, in the eyes. If you did want fizz, there was already a bona fide scientist for this. John Perrion started work in 1668. In 1662, Christopher Merritt... A founding member of the Royal Society of England, a bottle-making enthusiast and a very stubborn scientist presented a paper on how to purposely put bubbles into wine. Merritt showed that adding sugar into, the, into a wine, closing the seal, would produce bubbles. It's a process called capitalisation and it's exactly what champagne uses today to ensure, ensure a fizz. Perion would have been aware of this, but he didn't want to add bubbles. He was trying to remove them. And what was making matters worse was that bottle production was improving. In the 1700s, stronger bottles that Merritt was involved in making were, were available and being used, and these would withstand that pressure of the secondary fermentation. The Dom had invented a capsule that would prevent the cork flying out. That's that kind of uh, wire mesh you see on top of bot- uh, champagne bottles. This meant that more random uh, sparkling, more random fizz was getting out into the public. And so in, in 1715, Dom Perignon died, a blind man still making wine by taste with random extra fizz getting into the market and soon a revolution came, around, came along and overthrew the king. Champagne was once again on the outer and it went through some very lean times. By 1821, the Abbey that the Dom worked for was in financial ruin. Because the Fizz was too hard for them to fight against, they started to use it as a marketable difference. And the Abbey promoted the idea of the Dom as an inventor, which he was, and a discoverer of making better wine, which he was, Uh, and created this quote, come quickly, I'm drinking the stars, which he never said. This was all done as a tribute to the local legend and to help sell some of this sparkling myrrh they had on hand. It wasn't until the late 1880s that sparkling champagne was made on purpose with an intended consistency. And the myth of the Dom was being used again. Mineral baths? and gin and tonic waters were being served, and this was considered a healthy thing, so why not champagne with its bubbles? After all, it was an all-round remedy, good against depression, appendicitis and typhoid. And it followed logically that the French would use champagne to improve the courage of their troops in World War I. Later, the Dom was used to promote fizz in America at the end of Prohibition, this time there was a claim of a 250th anniversary of his invention and uh, they highlighted the historical link to the French uh, royalty and Dom Perignon's name became a brand on a high-priced champagne. All of this advanced the idea of champagne as a luxury item that was devised by a pious monk and that would make you happy and healthy. And so today... Bubbles are sprayed out in celebration. Who cares if you break a few bottles? Just send it around and enjoy yourself and have a party. In fact, you could imagine a modern day champagne owner holding up a glass of bubbles and saying We love the myrd out of this. Bless the myrd for Dom Perignon.
0: That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost Lost in Science!
1: Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.